Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. I am Brian Scott Rippy. We've got Weldon Rodenberg on as he missed our normal Sunday show. Got, uh, caught up with him, thought his thoughts on the two-lane game, uh, what to watch for with Ole Miss going forward with Georgia Tech, look around the SEC, and a couple of uh, couple of other topics. No soccer corners. The EPL is off this week, so it's hard to disappoint the people in America and across the pond. But good conversation about some issues plaguing this Ole Miss team, but one that sits at 2-0 and and still has everything in front of it. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Buckle up. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit is located off Old Taylor Road, just a less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. It sleeps, ate comfortably. It is gated. It has amenities such as a tennis courts, sauna. It's a great place to be. It can be hard to find a place to stay in Oxford, particularly on big weekends. Maybe you're just coming through for a business trip. Hey, maybe you're coming up for a midweek basketball game. Got the basketball season tickets coming up. There's all kinds of availability, including Vanderbilt weekend for football. Check them out. RentTheSipOxford.com. Bracken Ray, friend of the pod, would not steer you the wrong way. It is a prime location, less than a mile from campus, straight shot to Swayze Field, almost a straight shot to Vaught Hemingway Stadium, and of course, an easy walk to the pavilion as well. You need to check it out today. Go to RentTheSipOxford.com to check availabilities. If you use the promo code RippyWrites, R-I-P-P-E-E, Rights, R-I-T-E-S, that'll get you 100 bucks off any two-night minimum stay. Please check this out. Don't miss out on the opportunity. You always hear about it. It's hard to find a place in Oxford. I'm giving you one in a prime location at a terrific price. Check them out. RentTheSipOxford.com. Podcast is also brought to you by Seaspire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have a reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves in having the best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is an award-winning local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and South Alabama regions. Seaspire is proud to announce the release of their new two gigabit and eight gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com and use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, for one month of free service. That's right. You're going to get the best internet on the market. I use it. Can't be having bad internet doing the podcast and all the other stuff we got going on here. It's the best in the market. And just for listening to this podcast and using the promo code RIPPY, you're going to get a month of free service. Take advantage of that today. Cspire, customer inspired. All right, here's Walden Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Walden Rodenberg, a day later than usual because Walden was uh, taken in the scene. We had an embed down there on the Rippy Wright's podcast, went to the Ole Miss game, went to the Tulane game. You made it back in one piece, which is always a win when you go to New Orleans. How was the weekend, my man? It was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sure you'll hear from my voice throughout this next hour, hour and a half or whatever. I'm uh, pretty tired. Uh, I got in Thursday night, left. My flight was 7 o'clock um, out of New Orleans on Sunday night because I went to the Saints game too, and I'm still slightly recovering. But it was an absolute blast. Uh, it was great to do both of those games. Um, great to get two wins out of both those, which were both in doubts. <laughs> 
in different times uh, in both those games. Uh, so I can't complain, but I say this every week and I go somewhere and have too much fun is I am not as good as I once was. That is an absolute fact. And it gets more sad each time it happens, but um, we're doing all right. Yeah. I, I mean, we were talking about right before we started recording where it was like, I was deciding between road trips this year. If I do one, it was like New Orleans, Athens, this one didn't really work out. And I was like, Saturday, I was like, damn, it'd be really cool to be down there. Then on Sundays, I'm sitting on my couch and seeing people go into the Saints game too. I'm just having the realization of like, this would ruin me for three, four days at work. Uh, as you said, I am not what I once was. That would be putting it mildly. And I'm getting to Mildly-er. the age now to where it's just like, well, I'm glad I avoided that. And it's not like actually wishing I was like glad I didn't go down there. It's just like the fear of the hangover secondhand through social media has replaced fear of missing out as the kids say it. So that's how you know I'm an old ass has been. That's just... If my no, mindset's I mean, that way, I'll be asking about Social Security and AARP within five years. Well, I mean, after Friday night, which was a lot. Um, and this is know, a like, home game, basically, for you. This is like a neutral site 30 minutes away. Oh, yeah. Not no. literally 30 minutes, but you get my point. No, it's nothing new um, going down there. And I mean, after Friday night, I wake up Saturday and I mean, it was not good, not, not good at all. And, and you, you walk outside, it's 930. It's already like 95 degrees. Uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty tough day. I think I actually made the somewhat responsible decision to literally drink water from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. There you um, go. Saturday, which is that's just a lot. You know, I'll give myself a pat on the back. But it was more because, like I said, it, it's getting tough these days. <laughs> Um, and honestly, it wouldn't matter if you drank 10 beers at that game, you were sweated all out eventually because it was so damn hot. Um, so it wasn't exactly like that big of a deal. You know, I made fun of the announcers on Saturday on the internet, as I've been prone to do about them talking about the heat as if Ole Miss came down from Saskatchewan to play (laughs) that game. But in fairness to them, it has been unseasonably cool the last couple weekends here in Oxford and so much so that. I hope it's not a false fall thing. It's not really fall weather, but it's not where you're neck of the woods, Texas, 98, 100 degree heat. It's been in the 80s most of the last couple of weeks. The first home game is actually pretty pleasant. And it made me think a little bit. It would probably was you're having 10, 12 days to where it doesn't feel just unbearably hot for the players. It had to be a little bit of a kind of a recalibration because it, it I mean, I've, I've lived it. It hasn't been that hot here and it sounded very much like what you figure your typical Ole Miss home opener would be, where it's 90-something degrees and everybody's sweating their nuts off, which is just not what happened, knock on wood, last week. No, I, and the, really the scary thing is, you know, we were talking when we were in the stands, like after a game, before the game, it, it could have been much worse. Um, you know, it's we're just babies, basically. I mean, it was probably like, I don't know, like 90 or 92 degrees. Humidity was lower than it had been the past few weeks in New Orleans, which was a plus. Uh, I mean, the one issue was, one, you add 15 degrees to that because, you know, the players themselves are on turf, but we're talking about us right now. Um, in the stands, you know, it, it's the middle of the day. There was not a cloud in the sky. So there was just no escaping it. Uh, we were very fortunate. My dad and I, my brother, um, were on the last row in like the corner end zone section, kind of like where all of the Ole Miss fans met. So there was actually like a walkway behind us where we could actually just stand up. There was like a little breeze behind us and you could kind of like walk around. Um, but if we had been like, let's call it the 10 yard line on the away side, like just in, in the, the thick of things, 
I wouldn't have stayed the whole game. I would have stayed for a half and left, but we were uh, actually really lucky with where we ended up sitting uh, with my dad's very, very low Ole Miss season ticket priority points to be on the last row because uh, that was a huge benefit. But um, it got better in the second half, which I guess the football game for Ole Miss did too. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of being a baby, but it, it was actually – it was pretty tough. No, I I mean, it, it, look, heat is heat, and particularly when you're out there with no uh, – with no, you know, cover as far as shade is concerned, South Louisiana in uh, September, like breaking news, is hot, and that's been weather corner. But it's it's interesting to me. We'll just start there. From and we won't do a typical Sunday show. Uh, Chase filled in on the Sunday show yesterday. We'll spin it a little bit more forward than we normally do. But just looking back for a second, thoughts on the game. I mean, look, I mean, we all know all the issues that Plague Ole Miss and kind of what what needs to be improved on from there. But uh, I guess to kind of pitch you a little more positive aspect of it, they did rebound that second half, 27 to three, no matter which way you want to chalk it up, they played a lot better. What did you think of the game? And what did you think of Ole Miss leaving it? Is your opinion of them any different after this one? Did, did you and Chase talk about the commercials on Sunday? But that's because you and I have covered the fact that they didn't actually solve a real problem with that. It was just more commercials and less game time and all that. We did not. And honestly, I didn't notice it because I watched the first half in a public place and then came back for the second half and watched it from the comfort of my own home. So I dodged it. And then I also have a story we'll get to later on about a uh, an old lady neighbor of mine who caused me to miss 10 minutes of the game. But whatever. I didn't notice the commercials as much. Um, but no, was it was it excruciating long TV times? So I don't want to dodge your, your own opening question. We'll no, talk go ahead. I like we'll this subplot. Uh, but, like, we have to talk about this first. So this was my first game, obviously. It's only week two, the first live game I've been to this season. And, obviously, the whole commercial thing has been a huge point of emphasis, not only on this podcast network, but kind of just everywhere. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect. It's so bad. It is worse, you mean? Oh, it is so much worse. So the equation here noticeably worse. More running clock, less stoppages in play. Therefore, they cram the commercials where they can get them. Is the general the general thesis here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not even including if there's ever some sort of review. It's like we're going to review and we're going to a commercial break. I mean, it wasn't just me. The entire stadium, the entire section, like every time it was a break, everyone's just looking around. Of course, like I said, it's hot as shit. So you're already kind of like, you know, on edge. You know, the team's not playing well, so you're on edge. But at least when you're watching football, you're engaged and you forget everything else. But when you're in those six, seven-minute, you know, TV timeouts and you're like, do I go get water right here and wait for 45 minutes? Or, you know, what do we do? I mean, it was – it's so bad. The product itself – and then, of course, you know, I went to the game on Sunday. When you compare the two, it's just like – College football has more in common with like an elite high school game than it does with the NFL from like a TV game flow prospect. It's absolutely terrible. Um, And I kind of tried to look at it from the week one to like get ready for it to see how it was going to go. And it went as I expected, but in person in the heat, it's so, so much worse. I mean, it is a joke how bad it is with the commercials. So I had on here to pull tenfold hat guy. I noticed this a little bit watching Duke and Clemson the Monday night of the Labor Day game, whereas they have the running clock thing, which we talked about, which is again classic college football fashion. It's not actually solving a problem; it's the commercial breaks and everything else is the real problem. Full conspiracy theory guy, do you think now 
the SEC, the league offices, the overlords, mafia, college football are thinking now, hey, if it's close, let's go to that review so we can get the commercial break in. Is there anything to that theory? I mean, that's the way they've been handling this sport for like the last three years. It's like if it's anywhere close, like we're just going to go to review and we'll get we'll add in a few extra. So, no, I don't doubt that at all. Um, and like from a game flow perspective, it's such a weird dynamic of how the game works now. The the first half, I mean, yeah, it was like a typical long, you know, first half. There were stoppages, there were reviews, yada, 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 a few touchdowns. But the weird thing, and it's something I noticed watching on TV, the third quarters in these games fly by. I'm talking like I would love to see the stats. And, of course, maybe I'm completely wrong and I was just delusional and like kind of, you know, just couldn't pay attention because of the heat. But the third quarter felt like it was 15 minutes. The first half felt like it was three hours. And the fourth quarter felt like it added on an extra two hours. I know there was a lot more scoring. So that, that happens with that. It just had a similar it, perspective on TV. It did feel like the third quarter went by fast compared to the first half and the fourth. It just feels so disjointed. And just from an in-game, like when you're at the game, it's so much worse than I can even like describe to you. I don't have the adjectives for telling you how frustrating it is being at that game. And it's honestly going to give me pause for, you know, I'm not the rest of my life, but until they decide what to do with this, if it's a game where it's a Saturday on September at 2.30 and I have to travel and pay money to go to it, I'm not going. It, I mean, it was that terrible. And it's so funny because baseball has done this, and I'm, I'm a, we're a Cubs season ticket holder, so I've gone to two series this year. Those games are – those fly by, like almost too fast. They go so fast trying to get in the innings and the pitch clock and everything. It's like a totally different – dynamic with the two sports and one is much much worse than the other uh it it sucks and the last thing on this is i was watching the first you know nfl red zone sunday we've had in quite a while the nfl's got it down pat and it's not because they had a running clock that's just the rules that's just a rule they decided to implement whenever they decide to implement it but clearly with what college football is doing now the running clock thing is not why the games are more efficient. And it, it just blew my mind where the first half of the early window on red zone, you get to a point where literally every single game except the Saints game, because whatever reason they started a little bit. The Saints late. game was oddly long, and it still felt short compared to the Ole Miss game. It was Did it start game. later? Because red zone didn't go to it quicker. I don't know what happened, but they what? were the ones that were not holding things up, but they were the ones not in unison to where I guess my overall point would be Every single early window game except the same game went to halftime at the same time. It's like, damn, these people have it down to the minute. Right. And the only reason the Saints game was like that was because the opening kickoff ended up getting fumbled. And they, they were they he threw a challenge flag and they were already about to start. It just, you know, it was like kind of an anomaly. Like this is like a very weird, like 10 minute deal. This doesn't happen. The game. This doesn't happen. And like in college football, I mean, the, the games are just all over the place, and it, it sucks. So we we can digress on that. I had to bring it up, and, you know, I don't even know how many people listen to this, but I hope everyone feels the same way and will say something, and then we can get rid of this shit, which we'll probably won't because they've kind of sold their soul to the TV companies. It's the only way this shit exists anymore. Um, it, it's terrible. It, it was really bad. It's not changing for the exact reason that you said they've sold their soul for money and TV contracts and TV revenue. And if the TV people want more commercials, then so be it. Where the uh, NFL actually, to their credit, they're a gigantic, I mean, they're one of the largest, if not the largest organization in professional sports. If 
TV thing, like TV commercials, revenue, whatever, something's disrupting the product, even though it's money related, they can be like, hey, let's do this a different way. Not saying that uh, NFL is going to take your charitable discount, but they have an interest in fixing it where college football is like, nah, they're going to be there no matter what. Let's get more money in there. So it's just the, I don't know, I guess it's part of it. It's part of the experience now and we'll continue to watch, but it's not going to make anything any better. Far as Ole Miss, what'd you think? It's tough because, I mean, obviously the first half was no bueno. Um, they could not run the ball. I've actually rewatched the TV copy of the game, so I feel pretty informed having been there and then rewatched it. They could not run the ball. Um, defensively, I thought the defensive line early played really well. Obviously, they were not tired yet. They were able to get to the passer. They were able to to get in his face and, you know, it's early for him, but look, he's net, he never lost a, a football game. He was 30 at Carthage, which like everyone in the entire world was saying during the tailgate. Uh, then he won a game for them at Houston last year, coming back from a pretty large deficit. Um, so he's like not a terrible quarterback. He ended up fading late, um, but they came to play. And I think Ole Miss and Lane said it today, and I honestly hadn't thought about it of like just not seeing the starting quarterback warming up, kind of like taking that edge off to begin the game. I think that absolutely had a fact uh, had a factor in the early on going. Um, I thought the DBs like did not respect the speed of some of those receivers early. You saw it on the second touchdown. Like I mean, they had two guys just streaking open because they were flat footed. Um, and, and the then, one that led to the first one where they just got blown by by that kid that went from the right side to the left. Oh, yeah. Just With the key, the keys kid. I mean, he was a Notre Dame transfer, like he hometown kid wanted to play there. Um, that was actually just a piss missile to throw, too. I'll give him credit on that. Um, but look, they, they composed themselves, they kind of started doing a little bit different. It, it kind of seemed like they had to wait till halftime to adjust to how they were going to move the football because. You know, Tulane basically, I mean, you could see from the TV copy, you watch the first quarter, they literally just slanted the defensive lineman, both linebackers, and sometimes even a safety just came down like banshees. Ole Miss was just completely lost for a half of football and how to run the ball. Um, but then they kind of figured it out. The defense held steady. I thought the DBs got better as the day went on. I mean, DeAndre Prince, his ball skills – on some of those plays in the second half were incredible. Same with Walton. Uh, you know, I, I think they're still probably a step slower than you'd like in the back end, but I've been really, really impressed with the technique and kind of the focus on fundamentals from those guys. Um, I thought Dart was great. I mean, I thought he was exceptional. I mean, even the interception he threw was because Dayton Wade slipped. I mean, it wasn't, you know, he was trying to force it on the third and 12, but like, you know, I, I'd rather that than, than anything else. Uh, I thought he was great. Um, I mean, it, it's just, a, it's a very weird game. You know, they had to fight it out. Uh, it's been said a million times, but it does feel like a game in the past that Ole Miss would lose. And I'm not even just saying last year's team. I'm saying like, as my life knowing Ole Miss, like you just kind of felt like everything was against them. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of things to work on. There's definitely some positives to take away, and I'm sure we'll get into the minutia of it. Uh, I mean, it's a good win. It was obviously much closer than the final score indicated. But at the end of the day, you went on the road against a really good team. I know the backup quarterback played, but I'm I'm fine with it. I, I've kind of digested over a day or two and, and thought more about it. I mean, I definitely not don't think we know as much as we would like to about this team. Uh, a lot of that is because of the injuries they've now accrued over the last two or three weeks. 
but I'm not going to like, you know, throw this team to the wolves either yet. I thought it's a pretty gutsy win and kind of a weird game. And the Horton aspect of it, for whatever reason, last year, I believe it was a Thursday night game against Houston. I actually watched that. On the road. On the road. And it was a crazy, crazy finish. And that kid was pretty good. And so, I I mean, I had a a three and a half, four quarter sample size of whatever I was doing that night and watching it on television uh, from my house. And I knew he was competent. This wasn't a situation to where, I mean, I don't mean to pick on folks, but I mean, I watched uh, Luke Altmeyer against Kansas on Friday night, and at any point at Ole Miss throughout the uh, the meat of their SEC schedule last year, if Dart had gotten hurt and they had to go to Luke Altmeyer, I don't think that'd be the same offense. Not saying he's a terrible quarterback, but there's certainly a drop-off and maybe more so than that was suggested. I didn't think that would necessarily be the case as good as Pratt is. The one hypothetical I would have Pratt is when Ole Miss got into that offensive lull after the first two drives of the game, and they got down 17 to seven and the defense got him a couple stops that helped him a little bit. Would that have been different if it were Michael Pratt? Would that have gotten to 24 to seven or 20 to seven to where all of a sudden the whole dynamics of the whole thing are different when Ole Miss doesn't do anything on its first drive of the second half, does Pratt lead two lane down for a touchdown and all of a sudden it's 24 seven and you're honestly just a race against time and a race against the clock. But again, they did enough. They did more than enough to win the game and the, the, I guess the counter to that is, even though it's the backup quarterback, Ole Miss, the second half, Tulane, I had this something and I've written that I've not released yet. We'll probably have released it by the time this podcast uh, comes out, is the second half, after they got down 17-7, to seven, Ole Miss allowed like 167 yards of offense on like 40 or 50-something plays, which is good for like two and a half yards per play. I don't really care what anyone says after that. That's some... That's pretty good defense, and it kept them in the game. And, you know, hypotheticals aren't really useful in this whole thing because college football is just a week-to-week sport. But in terms of Pratt playing versus the backup, that would be the one question I had. But Ole Miss ended up winning the game by three scores. We talked a lot about on Sunday with Chase the offensive line issues. We don't need to rehash it in depth, but there's a couple of things that are interesting to me that I'd like to get your thoughts on is clearly they had issues running the ball. Tulane – particularly after Harris went out, their MO was make them beat you throwing the football. We're going to pressure Dart and we're going to make our DBs hold up and we're going to make Dart make good decisions throwing it. And I I wonder if there's a part of them that they had such confidence in how much penetration they got in the running game in the backfield that they thought we can do this throwing the football too because of how quickly we're getting that far deep and that amount of depth in the backfield. The offensive line is a problem, and I'm that's not breaking any sort of news. And by the time people listen to this, they probably heard it, you know, ten times out of ten on every show they've listened to. But I'm curious what you think about that because I didn't think the offensive line would be a problem with the amount of guys they had returning. You know, it's basically Nick Broker left, and then everybody else is back. On the left side of things, they're choosing to play two transfer portal guys over Jaden Williams and Eli Acker. So that, to me, makes me think they have reinforcements they need to go to them. They're giving the guys that won the battles in camp every opportunity to keep the job and win the job. So that, to me, makes me think, okay, it's not all alarm bells are off, but there's clearly an issue up front in all aspects, both running blocking and pass blocking. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a problem on Saturday. My biggest concern was like the lack of the adjustments, you know, on both ends, not only with Charlie and Lane, but from the players. They weren't doing anything like 
crazy. <laughs> they were stacking the box and the linebackers were just coming down like, like I said earlier, like literally like banshees and just blowing up any sort of movement. I mean, Quinshawn had like no hope on almost every single run in the first quarter and a half. Um, I think it's a pretty damn big concern going forward. Um, whether they're going to have to start going more side to side with these runs, whether they're going to have to start, you know, throwing some like, I don't know if you watched, I mean, I'm sure you watched the Texas game, but they're just like more bubble screens, more outside zone, more misdirection. Um, I mean, it's tough because everyone has said this, but this is not the most physical team you're going to play this season. Um, I mean, for all I know, Georgia Tech is going to have some pretty solid athletes this upcoming week. Um, but I mean, they got punched in the mouth and like for a half of football, they did not know how to respond. Um, and that's, you know, on the coaching staff too. I'm not going to sit here and blame the players 24 seven on this, uh, because there was absolutely no differences in those four drives that they got stuffed on, uh, in the first half. Um, and it's not exactly what we expected. I think we thought that this team had a lot more depth and we were confident that, you know, they were going to be a serviceable offensive line. I don't think anyone thought that they were going to be a dominant offensive line. You know, this is absolutely not Georgia. Uh, but the interesting thing is, like, every single offensive lineman played, I think, every offensive snap, if I saw correctly from what Chase put up there. So mostly Williams came in very, very briefly and like Acker played brief. maybe a snap. Like, we we're talking one to five snaps between the two of them. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's that's zero to me um, in considering the depth. So, Either we've got problems with Williams and Acker that we weren't expecting, or they kind of had the confidence in this group and they believe they're the best five to put out there. And if that's the case, well, I'll, I'll take their word for it. Um, but there's just going to be a lot of work to do. And I think one of the things that's also missing from this equation is the fact that Priest Corn is not out there to be an extra blocker. And if you watch Heath, who I had a good game against Mercer, but like was just not effective in this game. I mean, he did not. I mean, he just didn't block. I mean, it's just a matter of the fact like he was completely nullified. Um, Trig, kind of the same thing. You know, he was pretty effective blocking on the outside against some DBs late in the game in the second half, I noticed. But in the nub spot, still just another guy that like was not effective helping out with these safeties and linebackers that were coming down. Um, so, I mean, they need him back badly. And I think having him back will be a big help. They can do different things. They can run different, you know, run schemes. You know, a lot of it, of course, is just shading everything and then end up running inside zone from a lot of different formations and different setups. Um, so I, I'm not dead on them. I don't think this is going to be something that's going to ruin the season, but it's something they absolutely are going to have to look at. And obviously they are going to going forward. And that's what I wanted to ask you, spinning it forward a bit about the offensive line side of it. You know, as someone who worked in recruiting and worked in roster building and trying to evaluate all aspects of your program and what you need and what you don't need, it's it's not that if a guy on the offensive line starts one year, you just assume he starts the next year and that you can't upgrade. But that's that's at least in some respect compared to most other positions, if a guy's ready and he's game-worn enough and he's ready to go through a full SEC season as Jaden Williams did last year, and to some degree Eli Acker. Eli Acker got phased out a little bit in the middle to the later parts of last season, but was still a regular contributor. I just kind of assume that's who their left tackle and left guard would be. And the fact that two guys from the transfer portal came in and won jobs in camp, 
I guess the way to ask this is, is that common or is that uncommon? How surprised are you with two guys that played a ton of football last year? One, an entrenched concrete starter in Williams. Two, a guy who started some games and certainly played a lot in Acker. How uncommon slash concerning is that, that with two returning guys that are electing to go with the two guys they got out of the portal? And obviously there's a reason they looked in the portal to get them in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I would assume the reason that you'll get a guy out of the portal, and it should be the reason, is to start them. Uh, now, does that mean that you start them no matter what, even if they're not in place or the better player? No, of course not. And I don't believe that they're playing these two guys just because they transfer. I believe that they think this is the best five they've got. There's sure, a, we're only eight quarters into this deal. Exactly. These things change and they evolve quickly. I mean, LSU last year you know, started a completely different offensive line than they did game three when they eventually went to the two freshmen out of the tackles. Like, it, it happens. People adjust. They finally decide, you know, okay, you know, we have to switch this up. And I, I think that – I'm not even sure that switching it up is the issue. I mean, these guys just got to get their assignments right. I, I think that's the biggest issue um, and the most concerning thing. Look, you get beat on a few plays – that's life and that's football. If you miss your assignments, whether it's you're blocking inside when you're supposed to have the guy on the outside, whether it's run blocking, you're supposed to block down and you go to the linebacker and the guy that's kind of comes screaming off the edge and smokes your running back. I mean, that's like my biggest concern with it all. It's not the talent necessarily, because I think we've seen, you know, especially Pettis. Yeah, he's had his struggles in pass pro, but he's absolutely capable as a run blocker. Same with Jeremy James. Same with Caleb Warren. Of course, the two transfers we're not as familiar with. Um, so you kind of that's why the question marks, of course, lend yourself to the left hand side. Um, but I just want to see these guys play fast, play physical and get the right guys blocked. That's if, like the first thing for me. If you're trying to spin it in a positive light, it's you know, I mean, I, you've worked for teams that if it was those five guys, maybe one more. And if that didn't work, okay, this is what we got. If right. there's a positive aspect to this, it's the fact that they are struggling. And I'm not singling out the left side. I'm not saying the left side was worse than the right no, side. No, I'm just not either. It's just the new guys. Two new guys are there. Yeah. I mean, the positive aspect would be that you do have two guys behind them on the left side that at least played a bunch of football versus we're going to have to go to this kid that hasn't played a bunch because the top guy's not cutting it, correct? Right, exactly. No, we're not like calling out any players or any situation. Yeah, like, no one you, side was worse than the other. Um, that is definitely true. Um, so, no, I mean, it's going to be a huge point of emphasis because, like Kiffin said, like, I mean, there hasn't been many games like this for him in his head coaching and offensive coordinator calling career for the last like seven years. I mean, this was like a complete. I mean, I don't want to call it an anomaly because that doesn't mean, you know, it can't happen in the next few weeks. It might be a real issue. But this is just not how his teams have been, and uh, I think they're going to figure out a way to get it fixed. And, look, he brought it up, too, that, like, a guy that came in here in pre-scoring that was, like, one of their best guys that got in, he gets hurt, and that does change the dynamic of how this line and how this run game works because, look, it's a, it's a total combination. It's the quarterback making the right reads, the running back hitting the right hole, everyone blocking the tight end. You know, if he's in a part of it, he's got to do his job, too. Um, so I thought he actually in his press conference made a really good point about that. Um, so there's some evolution that's possible. There's some growth that's possible and it absolutely needs to happen, uh, here in 12 days. We'll get back to Weldon in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Twisted T. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted T, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted T is unlike any other hard beverage you've ever had before. 
It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol. Watch out out there. Dangerous. That's my words, not theirs. And no carbonation. Delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting with friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable memories. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. The world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Hopefully, you took advantage of Skybox Sports Picks 4 and 2 week in college football last weekend. All you have to do is go online to skyboxsportspicks.com, sign up for a picks package that fits your price range, and boom, you're more equipped to profit. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can try college football, NFL. I'd recommend going with the year long all access pass. And you're more equipped to profit than you are five minutes before signing up for Spy Skybox. It's a small investment to ensure that you do not lose money this football season. If you're into wagering, it's the only place to profit. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Ride subscriber. That's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and also discounted meats. Right now, the Rippy Ride special is three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation. You're getting there for 20 bucks. Show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up with the Rippy Ride special. Then go find all your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of meat. It's football season. You're going to want to throw something on the grill and watch all the games. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Walden Rodenberg. <laughs> and that lends me to the second part of this when we talk about it. As you mentioned, Prescorn being out, being a huge loss for Ole Miss. And Chase and I discussed that on Sunday. And it, it's clearly the case because Kiffin's offenses have always had a very good tight end. But you think about the pass game threat and like what they are over the middle of the field, which is a big part of it. I thought Ole Miss struggled over the middle of the field. I think that probably lent itself to why Tulane thought they could just bring linebackers like Banshees and not really worry about it. And exactly. the like the part of that too is is if Trigg wasn't a factor last year, I know he got hurt for part of last year. For all of Casey Kelly's flaws, he's a pretty good run blocker, big guy, hefty, meaty fella um, over there. That uh, I mean, Chad Kelly went on Twitter the other day and was talking about how he made the Ole Miss run game, maybe vindication game for Chad Kelly. But uh, <laughs> the other piece of it though sure. is like <laughs> Trigg's in a I say inability, Trigg not being an asset in the run blocking game. Is that really something like, – is that something – I guess I'll ask it. Is that something you peg on Trigg? To me, that just is never what he was sold to me as as a player. He's a guy that's a tight end, but it's pass catching. It's being a dynamic weapon over the middle of the field, and you live with the run blocking concerns. To me, that would be the most – the most potent version of this offense is Trigg doing what he does best and having a run blocking tight end when, you know, needed type of thing. I guess my point is it's like – this is not a gigantic indictment on Trigg. It's just what he is as a player and what they do not have behind him. I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, look, run blocking, especially from a tight end. Like, I played tight end in high school. Not the biggest kid in the world, but, I, you know, back in the day, I actually used to kind of be in shape. I, a lot of it is assignment and effort, right? Which is I mean, just being in his bugaboo as far as not getting on the field. One million percent. I mean, look, I'm not expecting him to be able to block a four technique 10 yards into the, uh, you know, into the backfield and, you know, just disrupt everything. But he and Heath, like, I mean, 
they're not incapable of just getting in the way. And on Saturday, they were actually incapable of simply just getting in the right place, getting their hat on the right side of the defensive lineman or linebacker and getting him out of the way. Um, so, look, there's a part of it that's effort and assignment. There's part of it that these guys don't necessarily have the skill set and size to do it. You know, it's a combination of a lot of things. And I think that's why they brought Priest Corn in. That's why they've been so excited about him, uh, because his ability to do what I just said in spades, uh, not even to mention his ability in the passing game as well. So, I mean, it's it's a problem. It's it's an extra problem to go along with how the offensive line played. Um, and then it's an extra, extra problem to go with the fact that, you know, Kamar Franklin and Harris is out and you're playing a walk-on at receiver, you know, credit Dave Wade. He played, you know, pretty well, all things considered. And then I thought he had an incredible game. The fact that they ended up not missing a beat in the second half with him and Watkins. I mean, that one-handed catch he made down the sideline, that's about all you can ask for both of those guys. It's unbelievable. He's also your leading receiver, and he was a walk-on from Western Kentucky last year. Like, that's a problem. No, and it's not taking anything away from that sure. kid. But when you add the offensive line couldn't block to the tight ends can't add to the block to you have no running game to your best wide receiver that so far the season is out. This guy you paid a lot of money for has not practiced. I mean, he's practiced, but, like, he's not ready. Um, and now you're playing, you know, Jordan Watkins, who we know what he is. Jalen Knox, who, you know, we called him a ghost, but he's basically a ghost on the field as well. He does exist. He's now a ghost on the field. He was a ghost of a human last year, but we have seen the fact that he does, he is living. Yes, he is living and he is out there. And then your number one receiver is a guy who, like I said, love his effort, love his story. It's absolutely no disservice to him. But, you know, this is an SEC program in a game where those DBs were like kind of locking on to guys for majority of the game. That usually should not be the case in this scenario. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that got to get fixed. And unfortunately, you know, there's not a whole lot of answers unless health, you know, comes into the equation pretty quickly. And that's not something you would talk about with most any football team two weeks into the season. But it's it's not the fact that Ole Miss is uh... – injuries are piling deep towards like how many guys do they have on the you know hypothetical injury report it's what's at, it's where it is it's at tight end and it's at wide receiver and the game got bogged down for Ole Miss offensively after Trey Harris left the game with a knee injury and it's the fact that you don't have Caden Priestcorn who uh confirmed had surgery despite some uh despite some stuff to the contrary that really is uh not really rooted in reality at all but more so copy and pasting from message boards but hey i'm not going to get into that any further today they hope he might be back against georgia tech i think he's probably aiming to be back against alabama which will help them tremendously as we just outlined but it's not like how many people they're missing it's who they're missing at the spots i mean my god if you could pick other spots to have an injury at they'd probably pick some other ones as screwed up as that sounds but these are real real pressure points for this offense well, I mean, this has really been a problem, especially at receiver for, I mean, to be quite honest, the last three years. I mean, it, it's becoming a room evaluation issue. I mean, you're looking around the country and, you know, we call Lane Kiven the portal king. But, I mean, there's other teams that have portal receivers and that have just absolutely changed those teams. I mean, Florida State is example numero uno. Uh, with Keon Coleman, who I know they wanted but didn't get. And then the Johnny Wilson kid was kind of underrated, um, and he's a six seven monster now. So you've had opportunities, whether it's out of high school, to recruit these kids. And I know we, we'll talk about Aiden Williams um, here in a second. But, 
they've had issues building depth, but honestly, at Ole Miss, depth is not what you should want. You need to have elite receivers to win in this league, and especially this program that's had such an incredible history, especially a recent history, which is all that matters to these kids. Uh, it's becoming a concerning, you know, roster management building factor because they've, you know, they've signed some, you know, decently rated kids, but they have not really contributed at all. Um, I mean, Aiden Williams played a few snaps in this game. I mean, he had a third down when he was blocking where he was supposed to be on, I guess, like a short, short sitting route. I mean, and that's why his snap stopped, which is was a theme in this game. Right. I mean, when you're going fast, I mean, I understand why they're, you know, actually they really didn't go that fast in this game. Uh, I think it was because of the heat, the clock, you know, figuring everything out, new guys, whatnot. Um, they needed guys they were just confident they knew what they were doing. But at some point, you got to be able to have guys that can make plays. Um, and it's definitely a struggle so far with Harris going out. And I'll give them credit in this sense. And we use the 2021 season as an example, particularly Auburn or when they had a couple injuries at receiver, like if Drummond yeah. was gone or when Mingo is dealing with his injury issues, it was like, my God, are you, who are you going to throw to? It wasn't that bad. Like uh, Watkins and, um, um, what, uh, my God, walk on th- uh, Wade. Yeah. I was about to say my b- brain is blanking mid sentence. Dayton Wade right. still played very well and they still had a vertical threat down the field. So in that sense, it's gotten better. Like the fact that they weren't totally handicapped by that, I will give them credit for. And it's a little bit of a, not a misnomer, but I will give, I'll frame it to you this way. When they entered the first day of spring practice, there is no way that Lane Kiffin could have, I mean, read the tea leaves maybe, but known that Chris Marshall, as Chase put it, would be such a shithead that he'd not even make it to fall camp. I mean, sure. You could say I that. guess, but if you go find that guy in the portal, you're counting on him. I get it. it not the cleanest track record. I'm not saying that it was like, oh, we thought this guy was an angel, and he wasn't. But there's no way he thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it to the season with this kid. And there's no way he could have forecasted the Zakari Franklin injury, whatever that end up may being. So whereas last year or years past, it's like, oh, my God, they got down one guy, and they're kind of screwed. Being down three receivers that you thought were really going to help you that's just a matter to me of just being like, hey, let's get healthy and figure this thing out. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't want to like push back and be. Super Please do. Negative. We don't do enough of that. Listen, let's read our comments. But I mean, you got a guy from AM that kicked off, got kicked off the team who was like clearly a huge problem there um, and brought him in. And guess what? He got kicked off of the team and was a huge problem despite his abilities. Then you go get Sakari Franklin. And, I mean, I don't really know how the transfer portal process works when it comes to, like, Medicals. figuring out some physicals or stuff. But I would have to imagine if they knew that he had a serious injury that needed surgery before he got to campus, that they probably wouldn't have paid him in IL money and gotten him. They would have figured it out some other way. So I, I'm not going to give him credit or give him a whole lot of slack for having these two guys out when one was, I mean, you could see that coming, no offense to the poor kid. Um, and then two, this other guy who, I mean, it's like a baseball trade, you know, you do the physical and then if he doesn't pass a physical, he gets sent back to, you know, the White Sox. So I, I actually have like a lot of questions about the Sakari Franklin deal because this does feel, I can't remember, wasn't there another player like this that was supposed to come in and was like hurt and then play initially? as a transfer portal player in the last like year or two, maybe I'm 
Is there a boy the ghost? I know he had some eligibility issues. Well, he had some eligibility issues, but if I think about it, I'll yell it out in the podcast. Um, But this just feels like the second time this has happened to this team, or maybe I'm having some Manchester United flashbacks. Um, So flip side of it, though, I'll flip it to you this way. All right. Say Harris is healthy. Say Franklin's healthy. With the receiving core they have, does that not make you think that they would be more explosive on the outside than they've been at any point in the Kiffin era? 100%. 100%. I'll flip it back to you. They're not healthy. And they're no, not they're healthy. not. But I mean, so it doesn't again, matter. <laughs> eight quarters in, that's, that's a tough one. That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. No, absolutely. I mean, but like, I mean, Kiffin even said it today where like, you know, he was even surprised. He was like, man, like we knew Trey Harris. Was I thought good. that was his most interesting answer on Saturday. He's like, but, like, that's what, that's where I'm coming from. He's like, man, like I was even surprised at how bogged down the offense was because one player went out. Like that, that was surprising to me. Um, and it wasn't that surprising to me because I saw who was playing receiver. It's Knox, who's done nothing. It's Watkins. We know what he is. And it's Wade. Like I will continue to praise him, but like cannot be the, your main target. I mean, they threw him like two or three fade balls down the sideline uh, at the end of the second quarter. And I mean, the, the DB is bigger than him. I mean, I just, I don't totally get it. It's something they're it's similar to the offensive line, similar to tight end. Like it's now becoming a health thing. Because clearly the other guys aren't playing. Well, Larry Simmons or Braylon Brown. I mean, Aiden Williams will get in there eventually because he's just too talented not to. Um, J.J. Henry, like these guys are just, to me, are just not playable players now because clearly the coaches don't play them. So that's all I can take their word for. Um, So it's it's just a problem. And I understand where you're saying, like, what it could be, but it's not. So that's just where we're at. Right. And I guess like the where we meet in the middle is just it is I do think on paper when you enter a season better than years past, because, again, like I'll flip it back in this sense. It's like, hey, if they have Zakari Franklin and they have Trey Harris healthy and help just for the sake of the argument, just to pile on. If Chris Marshall is a normal human being that can contribute playing college football, are we even talking about Aiden Williams is having to play immediately? No, absolutely not. That, well, that whereas years past, if you lose Mingo, it's like, well, what what are you doing here? Right, absolutely. I mean, fortunately, Malik Heath ended up being a better player, which is you know, which is great than we expected because you know Mingo has his injuries and whatnot. But no, I mean, you wouldn't even talking about having to have this true freshman come in into a, a system where they're playing on hundred miles a minute um, because you'd have guys that you paid and brought in and free agency to, to come fill those roles. But look, this shit happens in the NFL. If you go all out in free agency on certain position groups or a certain side of the ball and you, and you flop, you get fucked because one, you paid those guys a lot of money. And two, there's a reason you brought them in is because you needed them. Right. And you know, you're drafting, whether it hasn't been great, you know, it, it all combines and it happens all together. I've seen it with the saints a million times. So it's they have to figure it out. They have to get healthy and they have to improve. And the other piece of that, too, I want to flip it back on defense. One of the last thoughts that I have is for, before we kind of spin this thing forward, the snap counts. And I won't get directly into the numbers because that is a paid thing behind rebelgrove.com. One of the things that was a little bit surprising to me is after week one, I kind of made the point of like, hey, they rotated a lot of guys in there and it was early in the game and maybe it was just because they're Mercer, but it wasn't before the game was in doubt. They didn't do that this week. Uh, As far as I know, Josh Harris did not play. You saw very few snaps, I believe 18 from Xavier Harris. I don't think the depth is nearly as bad as it was a year ago, but 
they're not rotating like I thought they might have the ability to be. Maybe it was just the game, you know, two lane runs. I won't say a little bit of it. It's not untraditional by any stretch, but it is not your typical kind of like ground and pound hit you between the, you know, the top three, four gaps running game. Maybe some of it had to do with that. But I was very surprised, absent of an injury that we don't know about, which could very well be the case, you saw no Josh Harris. And after a week where Xavier Harris showed flashes of like, oh, my God, who could? What, what's up with this dude? They didn't play very much. And I don't know necessarily why that's the case. I'm not ready to tell you that their, their defensive line depth is completely depleted and that it's not actually what we thought it was. But that was interesting to me. And again, to reiterate one more time, not as bad as it was, say, mid-October of last year, where it's like four defensive linemen, 70, 70, 70, and the one guy gets in for five. But it's not what I thought it would be this week, and that was surprising to me, particularly with the two Harrises, Xavier and Josh Harris. Um, Sorry, you went out just for just a little bit there. Um, Yeah, I I don't know why Harris didn't play any um, – or, I mean, not Harris uh, – no, both Harris's. Josh Harris did not play. Right, Xavier Harris played very little. Uh, I mean, those the, both those guys are like interior, like nose, like stuff the run kind of guys. They're also massive human beings. And like I said, it's really hot. If you think that these guys like cannot play fast, can't play against up-tempo teams or a lot of snaps, like you just say, screw it. Um, I actually thought the defensive line, you know, I'm looking at these stat caps right now. I had to pull them up. I thought they – played really well so did yeah. i i don't think it's necessarily a problem yeah. i was just shocked at it and that makes me think it was maybe more a schematic weather whatever thing that's why i'm not ready to be like they don't have depth there yet yeah i weather was like you know we don't need a guy clogging the middle here we just need four guys who are going to be athletic enough that can be on the field you know before we do a full line hockey change which they did con- pretty consistently which is why i think some of these snap counts are a little low skewed um, and you really didn't notice a difference. I, I thought it was really impressive. I mean, Cedric played a majority of the snaps, but whether it was Uku, whether it was Cedric, whether it was Pegues, who was just on fire to begin the game, Akello Stone and Win. I mean, they, they played a, a decent amount of bodies, and you never really felt like, oh, you know, this line change ended up getting gashed more than the others. Um so I don't know why the, the two big boys didn't play. I'm sure it's some sort of scheme thing that, you know, is uncomprehendable to either of us, or maybe it is, and they just want to tell us. Um, but I will not be disappointed with how they ended up playing. Because, look, I mean, this is Tulane. It's not an SEC offensive line, but it is absolutely not a bad offensive line by any means. Um, so I, I'm, I was fine with that group. I thought that was really good. And, again, context is everything. And the last kind of thought on this, the way I'll frame it is, if you'd have told me, Pete Golding, new defense, you don't know a ton about these transfers, would you give Ole Miss a better than you thought or worse than you thought grade through two games? Um, It depends what positions you're talking about. I would say – Balance it and let's go collectively. Collectively, I would say slightly better than I thought. I, That's I like where I'm at too because I predicted were 30 points. The slimmest of slim margins, but slightly better. But yeah. if it was worse, we'd be talking about more concrete results, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think we, we would be saying, like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, but that I don't consider that the case for, for every position. Uh, I mean, linebacker-wise, they're still struggling. Um, and they don't seem to love what they have there. We'll just get into the assignment piece of it. Chase made this point on Sunday. You know, the younger guys, Aiden Williams, screwed up on that uh, 
passing route that I don't really know what he's doing. And maybe he thought he was run blocking. Maybe he was just pissed off at the other guy and saw red. Didn't really play a ton after that. Um, I did the, uh, the whole Centurion Perkins thing happened so quickly in the game that I didn't even really notice whether he was out there or not. Chase alluded to the fact that he may have screwed up some sort of assignment or some sort of fit early in the game and did not play much other than special teams after that. It seemed like very much a game where it was like, hey, if you're not going to do your assignment, we just can't play you in this game, right, wrong, or indifferent. I, I thought the Perkins thing was surprising, but I'm still of the belief that there's no way that Ole Miss will be the best version of its defense without that kid playing a ton of snaps in the thick of the year. Zero percent chance they will be they will reach the ceiling of this defense if he's not playing. I don't know if if you remember, but on that first third down for Tulane, the the piss missile that Horton threw that got yeah. them like all the way down to go score a touchdown. They go on an all out blitz, and I'm watching Perkins on the edge. Perkins kind of sneaks in. He ends up like flipping with the defensive lineman. He's on the guard. He pushes that guard no less than seven yards into the backfield, and almost gets to Horton before he unlaunches that that ball. They end up, like I said, got them all the way down there. I don't know what he did, but that kid has to find the field. And look, it's it's not the same as the Harold Perkins because this guy is not just playing an edge rusher. He's playing a true linebacker. That's a really difficult position to learn, right? I mean, that's you're, you're capping the defense. You are making the adjustments. You're moving the line. You're moving DBs. You're doing a lot. Um, and if he was not capable or ready to do that in this game, I can understand why they're like, all right, we have to win this football game. We, you know, we'll hold off for a little bit and we'll, we'll adjust to this later. Um, but he's just too physical. He's too fast. He's too talented for them not to work on that day in, day out to get him ready to play against Alabama and LSU, which we're not stupid. Of course they're doing that, right? I mean, they're not just sitting here and be like, oh, you you miss an assignment. Like, you, you're never playing ever again. We'll see you sophomore year. That's not going to be the case here. Um, but, you know, Aiden Williams is kind of a different story, in my opinion. I mean, receiver is not the easiest position on the field to learn. Not as hard as what uh, Centurion Perkins is doing, though, to your point. No, it is not. But, I mean, you look at Harold Perkins and what's happened from year one to year two – Year one, they just decided, you know, screw it. We're playing this guy at, like, outside linebacker, like a, you know, a stand-up, supposed to be a 6'4 guy. They're like, screw it. You are too good not to be on the field. They moved him to the middle, which I completely understand. It did not work, and it changed. Literally, you watch the Grambling game, they moved him right back. But it's a different position. It's a more difficult position. There is more assignments. It's less go, 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 more run fits, more – reading run pass more, you know, making plays in the middle of the field and making sure everyone's in space. It's not easy, um, but they got to get him out there because um, 11 isn't doing it for me. Um, and honestly, neither is 36. Um, it, it's pretty tough. And uh, 36 was not towards the top of the count and snap counts either. And one of those two, I can't remember, was not in the starting lineup, but uh, I'll look at that another day. Last thing I did want to do is offer thoughts and prayers to Aquilo Stone. Uh, he went down with an injury at a very critical time in the game when Tulane was going tempo. He made a miraculous recovery and was available for the next series. So it is great to see that he was able to recover from his injury after that. That made me laugh so hard because you're at the game. I, I, I'm sure you – I know you told me you went back and watched the game. Did you notice Dave Pash being like, we don't want to speculate. It's hot out there. And it's like, dude, we all know what's going on here. They're using the rules to their advantage. That thing made me laugh so hard where he's like, the fans are booing their fans, but 
but, but we just can't speculate. It's like, bro, we, we, everyone in their brother knows what's that. happening here. Like, no, you don't have I to mean, like it, but it's it's an advantage that they're creating. And what cracks me up about it more than anything is whenever another team does it, Lane loses his shit. I know. it's <laughs> He loses his mind. And we'll say it publicly despite him doing it, which is not a critique. I just find it absolutely hilarious. You know, it was way funnier. Actually, not even that that stone play when they were kind of driving towards the the Ole Miss band side. But do you remember the play where they thought the receiver caught the ball and then fumbled it in one of the stupidest calls I've ever seen? Oh, yeah. They were about to snap the ball, laying the side letter going crazy. You just see like every coach just like down, down, down. And all of a sudden, just one, but I don't remember who it was, just like flails his arms and goes back. So guess what? You know, our team is a cheater. Uh, we cheat. And there's absolutely nothing anybody can do about it. I think it's so stupid, but I will never complain about it because everyone does it. Yes. Um, and you'd be dumb not to use the advantage does. that everyone else is doing. And like, that's one of those things where like my brain goes to, I'd love to do a story on the trainer guys going out to a dude who you know is not hurt. And what are they saying? Yeah, what are you saying? What's the conversation? It's like, was it is it ankle? Is it neck? Is it foot? Is it head? Is it just going top to bottom over the body and being like, all right, we're still in a commercial break. We can get you off the field before they uh before they show you. Let, let let's time this correctly. They no, would it's... never allow us to do that. But my God, whoever the trainers are, I'd love to just be like, hey, what are you saying to a kid that you know is not actually impaired? I mean, can you imagine the content? They just mic'd up one of the trainers for one game and just like heard what they were saying to them. Because like I I know the team doctor for LSU, Dr. Bankston. He did my knee surgery. And like I, I just can't even imagine like when they do it, like what he's going to say to them. He's probably just like I don't I couldn't literally could not imagine because like this guy is a, a well-known surgeon and he's going out there to fake an injury and fake healing somebody. Um so it's post game meal gonna silly. be sick. You know, this flight should get out of here pretty quickly. Hey, you made a hell of a play on that last series. Where were you thinking? All right, let's help you off the field, pal. Yeah, you you want, you want to buy a watermelon? You know, do you need some water? Like, I, what what you need? Let, let me let me help you here. Let's get so, you hydrated, pal. That could it's be the unbelievable. Issue. Yeah, which I love it. I don't care. Last thing on this, I had to get your thoughts on this because there was a kicker press conference today. As much as made about Kiffin's recruiting, he just pulls kickers out of the woodworks. Um, so to recap, which I did on the Sunday show, but whatever, it's worth repeating. They had a freshman All-American kid named Caden Costa. He peed in a cup. Things did not go well. Gets suspended for a year. They bring in a kid named Jonathan Cruz, who was incredible, who made kick after kick after kick. I think he was like one or two from 50 plus, like 70 or 80% from 40 to 49. Absolutely nails. And then all of a sudden, they just replaced him with another kid named Caden, who Chase actually provided, I didn't know this kid's story, provided a great bit of insight on to where he just had this massive leg at AM, was supposed to be a punter, couldn't kick straight for shit, for the way I understand it, and apparently just started bombing 50 yards in practice. Biggest moment of the game, Kiffin has enough confidence in him to go kick a 56-yarder, and the kid makes one that, you mean, you were there, that would have been good from 66. It looked like it was going to be good from 75. I mean, he... It was he unbelievable. It was unreal because I'm I'm like behind him. So I'm looking at the goalpost. So like I know if he mixes it or makes it, I'm going to know immediately. Um, right when he kicked it, it was like the ball was like above the uprights. Literally from the get-go, I'm like, that thing is going to be good from 75 yards. Um, and I mean, clearly, look, Kevin will go for it over anybody. And like, again, he talked about today. He's like, you know, if we 
you know, we were going to either go for it or we're kicking that field goal. And we really had confidence in him. He said he was going to be good from 65 if he needed to be. Uh, Which I don't find to be here. crazy, to be completely honest, after watching that. That was an absolute bomb. I mean, it was unreal. I mean, it was a no doubter from the second he kicked it. Um, I mean, it's a massive asset. And it only makes me think about, like, how far Caden Costa could kick the ball when he was on his shit. I mean, if he was there on his stuff, I mean, he might have been good for maybe. <laughs> maybe mean, they started sharing. And I mean, they, maybe, maybe they did start sharing. We need to hold this guy out like he's Jordan Carlos Stanton and make sure he never takes a piss test. It's just it was unbelievable to me, and it's a credit to Kiffin. And like, if you really want to go full ten, full hat, you think Kiffin gets a couple of these kids and was like, "I'm just accumulating as many of these as possible, so LSU, Auburn, and Alabama don't get them." It's like, let's no, bring I mean, these kids to campus so these other teams suck. Yeah, absolutely. We pay them some NIL. They sit there, they do it for another guy who doesn't play. I mean, why not just you know, keep hoarding these players? It's absolutely incredible. Um, I guess one of the last couple cleanup notes. Michael Trigg, we talked about the tight end piece of it earlier, but just the sheer fact where Michael Trigg stood entering this game versus where he is now to see him on the field to play 42 snaps. We talked about this was an assignment thing game. Obviously, if he had screwed something up majorly, I figured maybe they'll just live and die by Kyron Heath. But for him to catch the biggest touchdown of the game and be out there that much, that is a massively good sign for Ole Miss, no matter how else the rest of the room shakes out. Absolutely. And when I was watching the TV copy, I didn't realize this, but Trigg was actually lined up on the other side of the field from where he caught the ball. And usually with the guys who you don't throw a lot of effort, you know, he's probably a backside read there. He probably stops on it. Probably stops. But no, he literally just kept running one start, made the play. He was wide open, made the catch, made the play. Um, can't say enough about him. Well, I mean, I didn't pay attention to every blocking, so I'm sure he wasn't, you know, he obviously was not perfect. Uh, but he played a lot in the second half. He made some big catches. Honestly, Dart had a pretty bad throw on the seam. Uh, I mean, it was going to have to be a professional throw to get him, but he was open there. I mean, he he was just – he was a factor. He's what you wanted him to be when he came here. And, you know, maybe this is like this kind of weird Nirvana moment of like they needed me, I came through. Like this is actually how it feels to contribute, and we see a different Michael Trigg. Um, That's a great point. I mean, that's possible, you know, know, everything we know so far says the contrary, but, you know, things happen, things change, guys get a moment, guys play well in a big game, they come up for them and see the kind of reaction, the kind of like what they need, how much they can possibly mean to a team, maybe that changes his mindset, I I don't know if that's going to be the case, but it absolutely could be. As we finally spin it forward 50 minutes in, because I'm just a liar and a terrible podcast host. This week, I'm fascinated by a couple of different things. Ole Miss is overwhelming favorites against Georgia Tech. I think it opened like 19, saw it as big as 21 and a half. There are two yeah. things I'm interested in. Feel free to take it which way you want it. You mentioned the Kiffin aspect of the scheme. How do you scheme yourself into running yardage if you know the offensive line is an issue? If there's a smarter guy scheme-wise, I mean, look at how Ole Miss performs on script. I'm eventually going to go back and see how many first-drive touchdowns Ole Miss has in the Kiffin era. I bet it's an absurd rate. If there's a way to counteract the offensive line while you're figuring things out and get some stuff going on the edge and kind of manufacture some pseudo-running yards, whether it's actual sweeps or that whole toss thing that's an incomplete pass that counts as a pass, I'm fascinated to see how they finagle that, change that, do a little differently after last week. And then the second thing I'm interested in is Trey Harris, who I don't think will play this week, just a little bit of uh, educated opinion. What they do and what that looks like behind him are the two things I'm looking for this current coming week against uh, Georgia Tech. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think this is kind of an interesting game. You know, when you go and you you bet on the NFL, a lot of things that people forget about is that these guys have a lot of vendettas and revenge games is like a massive part of, of betting NFL and college. See Texas um, and Georgia Tech, though, it's new players. You know, it's te- it's a new coach. Like there's probably still a lot of guys in that team who got their ass kicked last year in Atlanta. Um, and better and coaches guys, and better players, at least yeah. better overall roster. Absolutely. And there's a lot of guys on Ole Miss's team who were playing that game who probably are thinking going into this week that this team sucks and we're going to beat them just like we did last year. Now, Kiffin, like again, for the post conference, uh, which was a pretty interesting one, uh, mentioned that, you know, it's probably not going to be as big of a deal because of how many players were not on that team last year uh, and vice versa with Georgia Tech. So I, I don't know if I'm going to take his word on that one because I just it's almost impossible to knowing how many guys were on both sides of the ball. But it, it's a very weird game. Uh, it's a game they're favored by a lot for a reason. It's because Georgia Tech is still not very good, uh, but they are absolutely more competent and more you know, capable than they were last year. That's a hundred percent fact. Um, and there's a lot that Ole Miss has to work on. Like you mentioned, this is not a complete team by any means, whether it's injuries or just simple playing, you know, they haven't played overly well um, uh, on either side of the ball uh, going these first two weeks. So, I mean, this is going to be a real game against real athletes. Um, and they're going to have to show a lot. Like you said, yeah, Harris not playing. Is Franklin going to play? Um, what do they do on the offensive line? You know, defensively, are we going to see more Perkins? Offensively, are we going to see more Williams or shit? Even some Caden Lee or some Braylon Brown? Are they going to force somebody, let's say, in a Michael Trigg manner to prove themselves actually on the field? Um, so it'll be it'll be fascinating. It's it's a weird contest. I don't see a way Ole Miss. I mean, I can see a way Ole Miss loses, but I don't anticipate that being the case by any means. But there's definitely a lot of questions. When you talk about the mindset and makeup of this team, just reading tea leaves and reading the way they talk about them, there's very clearly that Kiffin and the rest of the coaching staff, even though we don't talk to them a ton, they seem to think this team has a better mental makeup than last year's team. Have you picked up on that at all? They just seem to be that they like where they are with their older players, whether they're new or returning, which there's not a ton of returning ones that are that old, but they seem to have be in a better place with the older guys on this team than they did last year. They just say subtle things that they did not say last year that I think they feel a lot better about the maturity and mental makeup of this team. I mean, it's hard to see, but it's easy to listen to. And right. mean, it's, it's been brought up multiple times in the last two weeks on kind of the different attitude this team has compared to last year. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, he did say it before the season last year, but like, it's kind of a, it, it always comes off to me as a little hindsight-ish, you know, just considering how the Alabama game went and the LSU game went, that like that team would have had a shit attitude if they were if they were 10 and 2 instead of 8 and 4, right? Um, but I think this game is a huge compliment to the team, to the coaches, and like what they've been saying. They're like, yeah, that absolutely could have been a game if this was last year's team, especially the one that struggled so mightily in the second half of like damn near every game that they would have lost and that they have a different mindset around this team, uh, coaching staff and players. So I buy it completely. Um, it'll be very interesting to see over the next three weeks. I think I buy some stock into that. And this is like not an Alabama tune up, but this is a game where you can kind of find some things and hopefully learn a little bit more about yourself before it gets really real. And that'll kick us around the SEC. We did it a little bit yesterday, but uh, we'll do it uh, again today on a Monday Uh Man, where do I start? I guess we have to start with America's favorite coach, Walden Rodenberg's favorite coach. 
Cristobal. I'll start. I'll start. I made an error in this play, obviously. I said it was my favorite play of the week. I bet it. I did everything. I was incredibly But is it an error? Could you have ever forecasted that A&M would suck defensively? No. But not only did they, they sucked on both sides of the ball, by the way, and we'll, we'll get into it here. But I did not know one thing, and it's my fault. I did not know that Miami fired Josh Gaddis after the season last year. They have a new offensive coordinator. Okay. Um, that's a huge mistake on my part. I should not have, you know, expressed that as my whale nuclear max five unit play, knowing that a guy who was completely incapable of running an offense was now uh, incapable of running it over at Maryland. So I did not know that. Um, so I apologize. You know, I lost. I'm, you know, I hope people are not taking too much gambling advice on this. This we do it for fun and kind of. We're well, not selling the picks. I, you you take no liability. No. Um, AM sucked on both sides of the ball. I don't care. They scored 33 points. Miami gave them two touchdowns in the beginning of that game with the block punts. Um, and then the like, they had a fumble or a muff punt or whatever. They were terrible on both sides of the ball. They looked inept. Jimbo Fisher's running this offense. Bobby Petrino is not. Oh, so um, you're already there. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you could just see the way they do it. I mean, you see the incoming dig routes that James Winston can hit. Nobody else can. I mean, you just they just look so plain, so boring, um, which is tough because they have so much talent on that offense. It's incredible. Weidman is legitimately good. They have three legit stud running backs, Daniels, Moss, and the freshman Owens kid. They have maybe the most electric receiver in the country in Stewart, and then an absolute monster on the other side in the Thomas kid. And then they have two very competent tight ends uh, in Max Johnson's little brother, Jake Johnson, and then the other kid uh, who's 24 who caught a touchdown pass. And they just aren't good. They just are not good. I don't – it's hard to even explain, like, how you can be so bad on both sides of the ball with that much talent. I mean, Miami looked more competent. They looked more physical. They were talking shit. Uh, they did everything better than out than um, Texas A&M except for some special teams gaffes, and both teams had them. Uh, I just did not see that coming. You know, this is Mario Cristobal's first big win in two years, and I will give him credit for it. You know, he deserves it. They are really, really athletic on the back end. Um, and Texas A&M is really, really shitty on the back end of their defense. So it was just a, it was a, I, people are calling it an entertaining game. People are calling it that X to A&M is like different. Like, you know, they still score points and it was just, you know, they got beat. They, this is nothing new for them. They looked nothing different than last year. They, they are not good. How does this end? Because as I alluded to the other day, they have ULM, then they play Auburn, Arkansas, and Dallas, Alabama at Tennessee, and then a home game against South Carolina. Like, uh, th- this could get weird quickly. This could result in an October firing where we talk about buyouts in college football and have that whole conversation again. I mean, this this could get bad in a hurry. They needed this game. I haven't looked at Miami's schedule. I don't pretend to know what Miami needed to be relevant, blah, blah, blah. A&M needed this one, and this is now they are really, really up against the eight ball, pal, because I don't care how terrible Hugh Freeze looked at Cal and when one of the worst football games I've watched in a long time. Give it two weeks. It won't be as bad. It won't be worse. I get that it can't be worse. But, man, home game against Auburn, Arkansas, Dallas, Alabama at home at at Tennessee, uh, this could go real, real bad. 
It absolutely could. The problem is that their silver lining is that I'm not sure any of those teams are like unbeatable. I, I mean, know. Absolutely not. I mean, Arkansas. If you're ranking them, Tennessee's the toughest one, right? In Knoxville, easily. At yeah. This point. And I'm not sure they're it either yet. I'm not sure they're it either. Uh, no, I mean, Alabama's the, t- I'm, Alabama's the toughest one. Uh, even in College Station? Even in College Station. They okay. don't win big games in College Station. I mean, what was the last big game they won there? That they're like actually not good at home. It was I mean, the night that that kid lost his mind. Uh, Calzada, oh yeah. the Calzada, the guy who like doesn't play football anymore, absolutely lost his mind against Alabama two years ago. Yeah, that I was about to say that was over two years. I was say that was over two years ago. That's yeah, no, a hundred percent. So no, I'm not worried about them playing there. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I just I don't think it's going to end up as bad as it could only because of the strength of the SEC this year. Like I think they will beat both Auburn and Arkansas, but if they don't beat either of them, then he's going to have to be fired because there's no excuse. I mean, there's absolutely no excuse. So is there an excuse if they split them? It depends. I mean, they play Auburn at home. Yeah, but they remember Arkansas is the weird Dallas game. A and M absolutely stole that game last year. Oh, that yeah. that has all the makings of an Arkansas revenge game, even though I don't think Arkansas is very good. Yeah, if they lose to year one Hugh Freeze with as shitty as that offense is at home, then I think there's no excuses and it'll just be a, a matter of time instead of anything else. I mean, he he will have to go. And that I mean, they're just they're bad. They're not any good. Alabama, Texas. I haven't seen Alabama be pushed around by very many, really almost no one in the Saban era, and it happened at home against Texas. This is now what will in hindsight be looked at as the overreaction week versus the people who finally have stumped on the Saban things over, uh, finally being vindicated. The Where I find in the middle is the fact that I don't think it's over, over, or anything like that, but I think the whole shine of Alabama just physically dominating people that maybe they have a more talented roster than is over. I, I was very, very shocked about the way that game turned out. Yeah. I mean, they were just out physical by a Texas team, which is crazy to say. Um, this was one where like I ended up betting on Alabama and right before the game started, I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is a total mistake. Alabama is worse than last year. Texas is better. and Texas should have beaten them in Austin last year. Um, and then, like, literally from the from the go, I was like, this is a total loss. Um, Alabama on the back end, I mean, Texas was more athletic at almost every single level of each side of the ball, which is crazy to say. Um, I don't think Alabama recorded a sack all night, which is probably the first time in a long time that's happened. Uh, Texas was able to run the ball. They were able to beat them deep. They were able to control the ball. On defense, Milrow, I mean, they were able to just kind of corral him. Yeah, he got his because he's a a freak athlete, but he's just not going to beat a team throwing the ball, especially not a team as as fast as Texas was. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty comfortable butt whipping. Really the first one against Alabama that I can remember, I mean, crazy to say that when Ole Miss did it to him in 2015, I mean, I know that was kind of an anomaly game. But it felt like Ole Miss took it to them physically where Alabama didn't really impose their will. Right, right, exactly. And then, of course, you know, there was also turnovers to account for that. It was a weird game, but one that Ole Miss was up by, like, over three scores in the third quarter. Um, 
I'm not doing dynasties dead, but no one's, they're not scared. No one's scared of them anymore. And I think that's the biggest difference because right. And the, the other tipping point too is, is Alabama's had a magician of a quarterback for almost a half decade now between Tua and Bryce Young to account for some of their flaws elsewhere. Uh, now you have a turnover prone quarterback and you just can't overcome that. No, I mean, they've had Tua, Hurts, Mac Jones, and Bryce Young, right? I mean, two of those guys didn't win natties, and the other two that you wouldn't think did. I mean, they have just been had such an embarrassment of riches, not to mention that Sarkeesian was running those offenses for a few years, as well as Kiffin uh, towards the front end. Um, they just look less dynamic. They have, like, four running backs who are all good, and none of them are great. Right. I mean, they, there's no Gibbs. There's no Derrick Henry. There's no Damian Harris. There's no Najee Harris. There's like four guys that look the exact same who are very decent. Uh, their offensive line doesn't get the same push as they used to. Uh, their receivers don't get open. They they don't have any real threats. Um, they don't really even have a tight end. The Niblack guy is kind of like a what we would love Michael Trigg to be, kind of like a split out guy who makes some matchups happen. Uh, and then Milrow can't make big throws and he just stares down receivers and throws picks. Um, it, it's tough. And I mean, defensively, they, the speed is down, you know, the technique and the, on the back end is down, which I know makes Saban want to just like absolutely kill himself. Um, and then Dallas Turner's good, but he's not Will Anderson. You know, you don't have to commit four guys to worrying about him. Uh, it's just, they're just down. It, it, they're not bad. They're absolutely not bad. Talented. But they're talented, and they've got plenty of guys, but they're just down. And it, they have no margin for error when you have the quarterback play that they currently have. And that's not going to change for them. That's the, the Ole Miss can change some things. They can get healthy. They can figure out some offensive stuff. There's a reason Buckner and Simpson aren't playing because they didn't think they were as capable as Milrow. And if that's actually the case and like they're not just completely missing the point, which I'm sure they're not, uh, it's going to be a problem for the rest of the season for them. Last thing on this, who's your favorite in the SEC West? I know that doesn't sound like a really thought-provoking question, but after two weeks and what you've seen. I honestly think it's LSU. Still. Still. Yeah. I. Uh, How big is the gap between LSU and Ole Miss? Um, I'm going to say it's, it's going to be an interesting game at Oxford. It's going to be a very, very interesting game. I think LSU has so many more dudes to throw out there on those sides of the ball compared to Ole Miss, especially in Ole Miss's current iteration. Um, if they end up moving, you know, if they get Mason Smith healthy, first of all, and they end up moving Perkins back to what he does best. I think that will kind of negate some of the issues they have on the back end because they're going to be an absolute bitch to try to block uh, on the ground and through the air. I, I think offensively, Jaden Daniels is plenty. Diggs is healthy. The running back, he looks really good. Um, they're getting some wide receivers back. I, I think that I think they're the favorite right now, which is crazy to say after getting their ass kicked week one. And that was the really the point I was trying to get at is if Ole Miss had anyone other than Georgia as their East opponent, it's kind of like, oh, my God, they got a shot here. Shot. And, and I'm not saying uh, – They're still in the mix is my point. And I'm not doing yeah. the thing last year where it's like, are they actually ready to take the SEC West? Now we get two weeks in. It's the most inverse thing ever where it's like, hey, I'm not saying this team's great, but who is great in their division? 
Yeah, I mean, if I could pull up the live odds on my phone right now, I'd be curious to see what the SEC West is. So would I. Do it in Texas. It's kind of all screwy. Um, but no, I would consider LSU a favorite. Ole Miss has an opportunity here, which is why it's it's really aggravating these injuries, right? I mean, exactly it could be on this team. You've got an Alabama and an LSU in one of the craziest years where they have bad DBs, and your Ole Miss usually has elite receivers, and you do not this year. Right. And so that's just going to be really frustrating to potentially watch. But they have the ability to beat both of those teams. I think Kiffin has not been able to finish these big games against LSU and Alabama uh, for the most part, but he's had really good game plans against them for a few years. Um, so I, I think they are going to be up to the task and they're going to have to get one of them. They lose both of them. I think you could see, you know, all this hype we've given to the team morale go down pretty quickly. They have to get one. Last thing I have is the fastest growing segment on American soil, which might be the least interesting fastest growing segment on American soil. Why were there no EPL games over the weekend? What what the hell happened? I'm looking there on a Saturday morning and I'm like, hey, what do I have in the morning? And then I'm clicking on games to where Fubo's like, just kidding. This is next Saturday. What What, what happened? I was pissed. It is the international break. So all what are we teams, doing internationally? All the teams in South America and in Europe are doing qualifiers for their uh, their continental tournament. So there's Europe, Euro Cup qualifiers in Europe, Common Ball qualifiers down in South America, nothing up in the U.S. Um, so that everyone's been on international break right now. Um, we did get a Champions League draw, though. Okay. We do have the groups for the Champions League. Um, we have United's in the same group as Bayern Munich, which will be a really interesting game now that Harry Kane's over there. Arsenal has an absolute joke of a group uh, against a bunch of teams that if I named them, you probably couldn't even spell them. Um, and then, then there we is have the Saudis that are in a different definition of the group of death. I would assume they were the group of death regardless of where they ended up. <laughs> A hundred percent. They are not only in the group of death in the sense that you're saying, but they are probably in the most difficult Champions League group drawn in probably like the last five or six years. Oh, it is PSG owned by Qataris people. So they have their own version of death as well. Newcastle, Borussia Dortmund, who is where that's where Pulisic used to play, where Gio Reyna plays now. They're the second, second best team in Germany. Okay. Um, and who is the last team? Oh, AC Milan, who won wow. the, won the Italian uh, Serie A two years ago, and where Pulisic plays now, and they have been on a fire to start the season. So those all those games on Tuesdays, uh, you can't miss a single one of them because not only are those all three, I mean all four, like incredible teams right now, they are all four uniquely fantastic venues. Whether you're at Newcastle in the north. AC Milan and Milan, Borussia Dortmund has probably one of the coolest home environments ever, and then you're in Paris. I mean, it's it's really hard to beat from that standpoint. So those would be things to watch when that competition starts, which is in like two weeks, I think. And I'll be watching for the side stats of who which club dismembers as many bodies, or at least their ownership groups. I'll be very fascinated <laughs> with that. I'm going to try to get into Champions League this year. That might be the next level of soccer corner. He is Walden Rodenberg. I appreciate the time, my man. We'll get you back in the saddle on Sundays, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, dude. All right. See you soon, man. All right. That's going to do it for our show today. Got a couple more pods coming from me later in the week. I talked to Vaughn Hutchins, former old Miss great, as well as Jeremiah Jean-Baptiste. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks for listening, 
As always, I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you later on this week.